The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. This is Perspective 3, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I am your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 2012 graduate from the Air Force Academy who went on to become a B-52 pilot, flying combat missions over Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Beyond his service in the Strata Fortress, he gives back to whatever community he's in, whether it's working stateside with Knights of Columbus, a fraternal organization, or giving his extra supplies to the local population while deployed, the epitome of service before self. To top it all off, he was named the 2020 Forbes 30 Under 30, as well as the 2018 Airman of the Year. Ladies and gentlemen, Major Julian Gluck. Howdy. That was a very kind introduction. Thank you, Coram. <laughs> it's awesome to have you on. Um, Again, I mentioned this on my last podcast, but LinkedIn has been doing a lot of good things for for me and the show and hopefully the cadets as a second order effect. So thanks for being on. It, it is pretty interesting having seen cadets emerge on LinkedIn. At first, I was like, well, this isn't really a platform for college students. I'm sure if the LinkedIn supervisors w- would hear that right now, they'd be shaking their, their noggins. It, it's definitely a great way to bring people closer together and help bridge the gap between cadets and officers, finding out the sort of opportunities you'd like to do and getting outside of your bubble. Mm-hmm. So to get right into things, um, where are you from and kind of give us a story of what brought you to the Academy? Sure. I was born in West Palm beach, Florida. And throughout my childhood, we moved around a lot My dad is a former Army Ranger and professional pilot. And as he jumped between different flying jobs from commercial, uh, corporate, cargo, navigational with NASA, then flying to help support the Department of Defense overseas, we, we moved around a fair amount. So I grew up in Florida, Tennessee, Maryland, South Carolina, and Georgia, which I consider my home state from the majority of my childhood was spent there. As far as Mm -hmm. the academy, I knew that I wanted to go to a service academy and that I wanted to serve in the military from a very young age. I think about the time people start playing with plastic army men, I thought, oh, that'd be really cool. But wouldn't it be even cooler if you were either the person in the air or you have a different position than the green guys with their feet glued to the the plastic uh, footboard (laughs) so especially the the poor minesweeper much respect to our our wonderful folks who do that job far harder to do it though when your feet are glued to the ground you're having to (laughs) shuffle but i I knew that i wanted to go to the academy it was all i was geared toward even in middle school it's like i I really want to go so Applying and receiving that acceptance letter was a major turning point in my life. And I know going to summer seminar the summer prior to entering, just looking around at the institution, at that great fortress on the side of a mountain that we, we all call home for four years or five for preppies, I, I just knew I wanted to be a cadet. And, uh, mm-hmm. I... Loved it there. I think some of my friends would say I drank the Kool-Aid. I was, I was really all about the cadet experience. It was very positive. I enjoyed the opportunities it gave. And it was chilly. It was certainly cold uh, for being from Georgia. But what a great spot to be at. It's, it's a special place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drinking the Kool-Aid, I think uh, sometimes, you know, we call kids, I don't know if this was a thing back then, but we call the 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 kind of kids that get involved in a lot of things NARPs. Is that, <laughs> is that a thing when you were here? NARP is probably my favorite pejorative word in the world. <laughs> so for those listening, I assume it's primarily Air Force Academy cadets and graduates. But you have NARPs, which means non-athletic regular person. And that is the sort of mm-hmm. insult that someone who's an intercollegiate athlete would lob 
at an individual who <laughs> primarily focuses on academia or they're doing all these club things or they're the very cadet position oriented folks. And then you have ICs, your intercollegiates, which sometimes is followed by an, another negative profanity. And that's what your uh, non-athletic regular people would use to refer to ICs because they they seem so distant and they don't attend all of the activities and they, they have special recognition above others. I was a NARP turned IC because I was oh, yeah, not a re- box, right? I did. So I was not a recruited athlete. I wrestled in high school and I was in no way, shape or form a good enough wrestler to wrestle the Academy. And I've heard what the guys uh, go through for the IC wrestling team. And that sounds like it was a tough four years for them. So I had looked at a couple different walk-on sports and I'd always been interested in uh, the martial arts. I've got a black belt in Taekwondo. I tried my hand learning a few others. So the boxing team, I started with intramurals freshman year, sophomore year. And then my junior year, I made the team after doing the wing open and then was an IC going through all of senior year. So I converted my goal to bridge that terrazzo gap, the Tizo gap, <laughs> as I'm sure it may still be referred to this day. So we're all, we're all aiming for the same thing, and that's to commission in the Air and Space Forces and, and do something great. Mm-hmm. On that note of wrestling, I'd like to give a shout-out to whoever's listening to um, Wyatt Hendrickson. He was... He was actually my neighbor last year in squad nine, but he recently took home to my knowledge. I hope I'm not saying this uh, incorrectly, but third in all of NCAA for wrestling and heavyweight division dude is an absolute gorilla and <laughs> can take anyone. He, Shout out. Why? Yeah. He, he is a, he's a monster. In fact, I think on Instagram, I commented on the air force Falcons, uh, post about his success at the NCAA tournament, mostly, and I, I'm not, I haven't been a college wrestler. You know, I just wrestled in, in middle school and, and in high school, but the folks who are normally kicking butt at those tournaments are like from Oklahoma or Iowa, these Midwest States, sometimes a few other outliers. And that's all they do. The fact that Wyatt as an, as a cadet has totally flipped the collegiate wrestling world uh, on its nugget there. It, it's just really inspiring to see. I'm curious what AFSC, what job he's going to go into after graduation, <laughs> because there's a lot of ones where I don't know if he's going to fit in the cockpit or especially if he was security forces, no one would want to do anything that's against the law in front of him. So yeah, definitely shout out to him. I think he got some award as the most dominant wrestler in the NCAA mm-hmm. tournament two years in a row. Unbelievable. I, I really hope he, he gets the championship before he graduates because I think he's tied as the most successful wrestler in Academy history. Really? There's, there's, there's some element I saw there. I, I like to follow Air Force Falcon sports. Despite being from Georgia, I, I haven't really been following uga or georgia tech or any of those i i like following our air force falcons in the mountain west (laughs) yeah i don't follow any any uh schools back home either but to get right back into the questions um you're very service oriented as it's been denoted in many of your resumes and bios so there are many ways that you choose to serve beyond just in your aircraft whether it be helping your community stateside, like I said in the intro, giving your extra supplies to the locals while you're deployed. What type of sacrifices do you have to make to give your time and effort to such noble causes? I appreciate that. I think with any passion or pursuit that a person embarks on, there's going to be a give and take. We, we only have 24 hours in a day. At least a few of those hours need to be spent sleeping. I've gotten more sleep as a CGO and then FGO than I did as a cadet. So it's really hard to function on low sleep uh, in in my very old age now. For (laughs) the kind of time that one has to give up, it's just I decided when I got into the academy, I'd give up video games. And incrementally over time, my available hours, even minutes spent in other leisurely activities has decreased. 
So I gave up video games minus Tetris. Uh, the occasional Tetris game online would keep me up at like two or three in the morning as I was starting to fall asleep as a cadet, just so I would go back to working on my paper. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you experience the Tetris <laughs> effect, which is worth a, a Wikipedia read there. And then since uh, through the Academy, I, I don't really watch TV. I don't really watch movies. So I'm, I'm far behind on sort of the pop culture zeitgeist. I do watch clips on YouTube. I keep getting all these suits uh, clips from that TV show all the time. So I, I don't know. Anything maybe it's trying to blinders. Nothing from Peaky Blinders. For some reason, the, al <laughs> the, the algorithm gives me Suits, How I Met Your Mother, and a couple other... Pro oh, The Simpsons. So I, I will say I do love The Simpsons, particularly the, the first 10 seasons of it. But yeah, I, I don't really watch movies. I don't watch TV. And I do have a lot more time than many others who are married or have children particularly in their 30s. So I'm able to give a lot of that time that someone would be spending perhaps with their family uh, to take part in and service activities. Mm. So I, I would say those are some of the sacrifices. I would imagine upon getting married and having kids in the future, the amount of time to be able to, to give would, would certainly be decreased. I can't be up till one or two in the morning prepping for nonprofit board meetings when I've got dependents or people to support. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, time management, that was during orientation. One of the things that they really harped on for dualies and I think should be kind of still harped on as you go throughout the Academy, because there are kind of ruts that you can get caught in as a cadet and I'm sure as an officer as well. But, um, it, it's it's kind of refreshing to hear because I, I I relate a lot of my friends that are going to be listening to this right now. They're going to be like, wow, Corm is, is the same. He's all the movie references just fly over his head because I don't, I don't watch movies. <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, I'm not a big media guy, so I just like to to get to work and and work until it's done. But I, lo <laughs> I love to hear that. So what uh, on that same topic, what keeps you from burning out? I was thinking about what, what keeps me going the other day. And I would say strategically, I'm very oriented trying to serve others. My sort of major philosophical bent is stoicism. And I feel like yes. with, if someone has the, the power or they feel enabled to be able to make a difference, that should be a pursuit that one should go on. So that, that keeps me going. I've seen the impact that so many incredible nonprofit organizations, volunteer groups are doing around the world, many, many of which I'm very grateful to have been able to contribute to, to learn from the leaders that are in those programs. And that, that certainly keeps me motivated. There is nothing I would say that's truly intrinsic that can really motivate someone to keep moving toward these different volunteer groups. It really needs to spring from a corresponding spirit in the breast of the volunteer to borrow a little bit mm. of Schofield's quote there for the cadets that are listening. I, I still remember part of it. You can't get it out of your, your brain. I don't know why. <laughs> then the other thing that I would say keeps me going is food. My, <laughs> I am a huge foodie. I love trying different cuisines. I eat out way too much. Just ask my mom when I, when I send this to her, eventually she's going to go, you do eat out too much. You need to cook more. That's, that's true. But I love going on meals and I either go by myself to sort of woosah and, and relax before I kick into the next program. I always take a dinner break when I stop my work day and then enter my nonprofit day, if you will, which is my evenings and nights or my writing day, if I'm doing some professional writing as well. So food and a lot of my car rides when I'm going places, whether it's for like a think tank fellowship, or if I am occasionally taking a, a day off or doing some sort of travel, I'll talk to family and friends. And that, that keeps me going and motivated to hear from loved ones. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like 
it's a good vice to have if if your vice is eating out too much. Yeah. You know, there's a lot worse things that you could be doing. That's certainly true. So what sort of things were you involved with at the academy outside of boxing? Wow. Some of the most favorite activities I did while I was a, a Zoomy cadet were the In the Stairwell acapella group. So I joined In the Stairwell when I was a dually when an email came out and they were looking for a beatboxer. And I learned how to beatbox <laughs> in high school after my voice started changing into the deep bass it is now. And I did not feel comfortable <laughs> singing anymore. So I learned how to beatbox watching videos of the Hasidic Jewish reggae rapper, Modest Yahoo. I was very fortunate to get to see in concert in Atlanta. And I watched those. The email came out and I said, you know what? I'm going to... I'm going to apply and audition to be a beatboxer. And the four years within the stairwell were great. Getting to perform at the White House for President and Mrs. Obama as a firstie and then later as a casual lieutenant. I was the main person that spearheaded turning in the stairwell from a, a band or group into an official academy function. And since oh, wow. then, being able to watch the cadets perform at the America's Got Talent semifinals and even do a little exhibition of my own on stage. It, it's been amazing seeing the group just come into this incredible uh, change over time and the sort of music and they've just keep getting better and better. It, it's fantastic to, to be able to witness as a grab. In addition in the stairwells, very involved with the Knights of Columbus doing volunteer work. I was the cadet in charge of our local cadet council, which for those who are not familiar, the Knights of Columbus is a uh, Catholic fraternal organization. And we do a lot of volunteer work. Knights donates hundreds of millions of dollars per year. If I recall, millions of volunteer hours around the world with the roughly 2 million members. So I was very active when I was a cadet, went from running the academy's program to eventually we were selected as the number one college council in the world. I believe there were five wow. countries, five or six at the time. And then I was elected to serve on the board of college students internationally, served as the vice, and then was the chairman of the college council's advisory board, which was a great experience. First a year and being able to lead a roughly 21,000 person volunteer organization for a fortune 1,000 nonprofit corporation. So it was, it was really fun. I was in the peer program. I think y'all still have that at the Academy, right? Yep. So I, I was a peer. I really enjoyed being able to help those who are having problems and get them the resources they needed and was involved with a couple other leadership groups while I was there. And I, I was a cadet group commander first a year, did a lot with the Japanese program since I minored in that and with the poli side department. Um, I had a blast and even things like one of the most unusual activities that I bring up to folks as an example of if there is a place where you can make a difference, it doesn't matter how small, take advantage of that. When I showed up duly year and after BCT, we're sitting in the SAR, in the squadron assembly room. At that time, I was a, a dually baby reaper in squadron <laughs> 31. They were looking for someone to volunteer to be on the Mitchell Hall Food Focus Committee. And no one raised their hand. And since I love food, and I'm probably 17 years old, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, this is my chance. I can be a leader. <laughs> this is why I joined the military. I put my hand up and they're like, all right, C4C Gluck, you get to be on the food focus committee. And once a month we would go in like the inner sanctum of Mitchell hall. And if anyone's not been down there, there's like this, I would refer to it as like a secret cool VIP room. And the master chef of Mitchell hall would bring in a couple like prototype dishes and we would test them out over that meal and provide feedback and i think i saw it as a little bit of an opportunity to test my stand-up and try to give humorous quips about the food i think i referred to one of the cookies i said it was so hard 
you could use it as munitions, like just drop it from an <laughs> airplane. Uh, and it, it like might have gone against the Hague Convention. It was so dense. Uh, but it was it honestly a really... for Mitch's. <laughs> but I will say, over the time there and the Mitchell Hall uh, dining professionals really took it seriously and they incorporated the feedback. And even a couple years later, and I could talk about this for ages, I'd, I'd love to turn it into a TED Talk one day if I had the chance. I was able to help change the recipe for tiramisu which is an Italian dessert for, for those who may not have had it. I don't know if they're still serving tiramisu at Yusafa on occasion. I don't think so. But we had only a- Mitch's Mounds. Only Mitch's Mounds. I mean, the greatest <laughs> dessert that's, that's ever been made. Well, we used to have these tiny tiramisu, and they were terrible. And in my introductory speech as a cadet group commander for Group 1, I talked about every time I ate one, I felt like my great-grandparents on the Italian side of the family were- we're just rolling in their graves at how much of a, a true, uh, dis- truly dismal facsimile of what tiramisu should taste like. And so for Italian American Heritage Month, I decided to spearhead this effort. And they go, well, we, what can we do? And I said, well, what if we change the recipe for tiramisu? I think it will make everyone a little bit happier. And Mitchell, the Mitchell Hall folks were great. The, the uh, chef at the time who was running the program, and he, I believe he was pretty new, really took it to heart. And within a month, they unveiled this fluffy, delicious tiramisu. And I remember everyone like, oh, this is really good. This is really good. And so <laughs> I made that a big part of my first talk as a uh, you know, really lauded cadet colonel, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> as a cadet commander just standing in front of all my peers going, we can change things. We got <laughs> fluffy tiramisu. And I'm sure, you know, years from now, that's still resonating with people about, you know, change is real. It, it can be dessert. So, uh, You're so that was my other activity. Uh, one of my buddies in, um, in squad right now, Austin Brown, he's, he's going for, for group commander. He should be taking notes right now. But in, in all seriousness, uh, and, you know, Mitch's gets a lot of crap because – um, the food isn't like Nobu quality, but granted they're f- feeding 4,000 cadets every day. I think they do a damn good job. Absolutely. That is a feat. And if I recall, Mitch's might be the largest freestanding cafeteria in an American university, perhaps worldwide. <laughs> you know, I'm just pulling out all these things that definitely were not in checkpoints, but should be in there. Cause that's a heck of a fact. Like, Feeding that many cadets, plus cadets by and large, and all of you who are listening know this, cadets can be pretty negative about a lot of things, especially during the dark ages when it's frozen there. Mm -hmm. The the Mitchell Hall folks with the budget they're allotted, feeding that many people at at a time do a a pretty strong job. So I I appreciate uh, their work. They do a great job. You also mentioned that um, kind of leading into the next question that things that have lasted a decade since, unfortunately it sounds like the tiramisu hasn't, lasted. <laughs> but you've, uh, you, you put the class year on our PT shirts. Is that correct? That, that is correct. So if I can recall how this went down, in addition to the hilarity, which led to be becoming a amateur food critic in, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, for the academy, there was also an opportunity to be on the Cadet Uniform Review Board. That might have been the name of it around 2011, 2010 timeframe. I'm not sure if that was associated with a position. In fact, I think it might have been two dig year, first semester, I was the group support NCO in group one, which has a bunch of random tasks associated with it. I think one of them might've been the uniform board. So I went into that and, you know, I want us to look good. So, and it seems like a lot of the stuff that the Academy does uniform over time doesn't change a whole lot. I mean, the PT gear seems to change every few years just based on observation and the service dress got the prop and wings on the collars, which, uh, and the, Parade dress, I think, also has the prop and wings on there now. Mm-hmm. So there, there's some small changes. And 
I mean this not to denigrate the different programs are going at the academy now, but it seems like a much larger portion of cadets have cords on their shoulders, which was not a feature when I was a cadet. So there's certainly changes that were happening, but I, I had a, some... There's more programs, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. It doesn't designate like, hey, you're, you're, you achieve something necessarily. Um, like the peers, they have, um, I think it's blue ropes or I forget the color. Sapper is teal rope. Um, D&I is purple. And now they have like a religious um, accommodation uh, organization, and that's white ropes. Yeah, that, that's a lot of visual identifiers. I mean, it's not unprecedented for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. I believe in different training programs for enlisted, uh, particularly when they have graduated basic uh, from BMT. There are courts associated with different responsibilities in the dorms and such. But not, not a lot of uniform changes happen. And I recall we were talking about our physical conditioning gear. And I remember going back to being a basic and working basic that you can't tell who is a, a basic and who is a cadet, like who are duallys and who are upperclassmen. So I just suggested, why don't we put the class year after the name on the PT gear, because then in basic or throughout the academy year, if we're really trying to do this like dually year versus upper class year program, you can't be sneaking around because that's totally, if, if I had less morals, that's what I would have done as a, as a dually. I would have been like, heck yeah, I'm an upperclassman. I'm just an IC from a squad you've never heard of because it's in a different group. And they just walk <laughs> around. With, yeah, squad 41. Uh, and then I, I play, uh, intercollegiate corf ball so you've never seen my team it's totally real uh so you know i'm on the curling team so you'd, they'd be walking around so i just suggested that i was like hey let's put the class years on and lo and behold the class years made it to the pt gear i'm sure it's in meeting minutes from a decade ago so if anyone feels like they've been uh, unjustly in their mind accosted as a freshman based on their class year, you can blame me. Uh, to borrow from Game of Thrones, which I have seen, that was one of the shows that like, I went to friends' houses to watch. I, I believe there's a, a scene involving the death of one of the characters. I don't want to do any spoilers for someone who hasn't seen Game of Thrones and they care, and it's been years now, where uh, re referring to a, a character's murder, uh, the actress says, tell her it was me. So that, that, that's me for the, uh, for the class years. Well, I got, a, I got a funny little story to share. I, uh, to get around your, um, your little fix there, <laughs> you know, it was a rule and I, I hope all of the, the duallys that are listening to this for years to come pull this trick. Um, so walking to the gym, we're, we're as a dually, you're supposed to go in UOD. Mm. And I always hated that rule because I just want to go to the gym, just take my sweatshirt off and my jacket off and just go in the gym, not go down to the locker room, have to take my boots off or like <laughs> take my blues off, stuff like that. So I would put my hood on, but I bought this brand new PC jacket Ooh, and it doesn't have my embroidered name or class year on it. <laughs> so everyone just thought I was like some upperclassman walking down the gym. I hope everybody learns from that. It sounds you like I need to. Julian. <laughs> <laughs> I need to write a concerned letter to the uh, the commandant and the superintendent. Dear Yusafa leadership, please add class year to everything. These duallys be stepping out of line. Uh, so, yeah, no, that's uh, that's ingenuity. And speaking of the ridiculous requirements that I think promote people not wanting to work out and do fitness. Like that's one of the few areas where I'd go, Hey, let the cadet barriers drop. So people actually get fit. I remember it's one of these stories that sticks with me about like times that something happened at USAF where I went, this is totally ridiculous. I was a dually and I was in PT gear. I think it was after recognition. I was walking from the gym back to Squadron 31, and I'm in the kind of tennis courtish area before you go to the fence. And if I recall, mm -hmm. there was like very clear signs that said, this is a no hat, no salute zone. Uh, I, I'm sure they're still there unless something's changed. And this Lieutenant Colonel, 
who is in blues is walking toward me and I'm still trying to be a respectful <laughs> member of the air force. And I say something effective, good afternoon, sir. And like an, a very cheerful, but, but authentic way. And he looks at me and takes his hand and the listener obviously can't see my hand right now. So I'll try to describe it. He gives this motion of like, trying to gesture to me that I'm supposed to be saluting him. And then he makes some sounds to the effect of, uh, uh, like baiting me into saluting him. I'm in PC gear, practically right in front of the no hat, no salute zone. And so I just look at him quizzically, almost like in a meme fashion. And I give a, a half hearty salute back to him. And he gives like a Rudy toot toot, you know, salute back. And I just go, oh, come on, man. Like, I, I greeted you. Be aware of your surroundings. So your your officer leadership don't always know what's going on. That, that was a lack of essay on his part. So <laughs> I don't know why that stuck uh, with it's, me. <laughs> it's always awesome hearing about stories of cadet things, cadet perils from grads. Oh, I got one more but, quick one for you. Oh, yeah, go know, for it, go for it. Just to go off script, uh, not that now we have a script, but I know there's actually questions you want to ask for the, the betterment of viewers or listeners. When I was a dually, I had to get mess dress early because in the stairwell, we had to wear mess dress a lot for our performances. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wearing it, and I'm walking near Arnold Hall to get in a car for traveling to some performance. And another dually, like a fellow classmate, is walking towards me and salutes me. And, and, and I think he just thought mess dress means he's clearly not a freshman or he must be an officer or something. His essay bubble was so small. And so I look at him and I'm like, what do I do? Do I just go like, what's up, bruh? Like, and so I just, and you don't salute in mess dress. So I just like, I just saluted him back. And I remember he walked on. I, I One day it'll come to my mind, like I'll, I'll see that face, but. Those are the kind of ridiculous things that can only happen when you avoid going to a state school or an Ivy League program and you decide to go to, I imagine, a service academy where you're so stressed out and drained that you see another like 17 or 18 year old person. You're like, I must salute this person outside. <laughs> Nowhere else. He's wearing a tuxedo. You know <laughs> Gotta salute. <laughs> I so I, I recently back in February went down to Lackland to see my brother graduate BMT oh, nice. and I was sitting in the back seat of the car that we were going through and the rest of my family civilian so they were just using my CAC to kind of expedite us through the the ECP but I hand my CAC to him and he hands it back and salutes me because I don't think he knew what like what a cadet <laughs> meant. And I was just like, oh, uh, I'm two years early. You're my first cadet what do, or my first salute. What do I do? So <laughs> I'm just sitting in. The, and then the guy, just we, we just drive off. I felt bad. But I guess that's the story of my first salute two years ago. Oh, that, that's funny. There, there's a lot of our outstanding enlisted personnel, particularly junior airmen, who are not really familiar with the academy. And for those who go on the sort of third lieutenant programs, the ops air force, and they get to... <laughs> observe that. I remember a, a cadet, or not a cadet, excuse me, a enlisted member who's in the chow line at a DFAC went, what is your rank? You know, I've got like weird clouds and stuff on it and probably in an over, overly cheery manner. I was like, oh, I'm a cadet at the Air Force Academy. And the uh, airman said, which Air Force Academy? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I said something, uh, the one in Colorado. <laughs> No, I was like, no, I was, I was trying to be humility. I was like, uh, the one in Colorado to make like future lieutenants. And like, oh, okay. I was like, yeah, we have kind of goofy rank because we, we haven't earned our second lieutenant bar yet. So it's it's funny. It, it Definitely the cadet experience is a, an amusing one at times. <laughs> so you work with a lot of nonprofits and charity. Um, how can you get involved with one or even start one of your own in the military? You have a lot of experience in that. Sure. I would say on the latter point with looking to found your own volunteer group or start a 501c3 or other charitable org, it would be best with most 
activities to take advantage of having a strong mentor-mentee relationship with those who are involved in volunteering and looking to join or support established organizations that are devoted to a cause that you care about. If you're really interested in faith-based organizations, of course, there are ones available for every uh, religious pursuit that one would want to do. If you are interested in helping support kids in need or elderly or those who are infirmed or incarcerated, if you want to lend your time, talent, or treasure to different activities, there is certainly an organization out there. And I would liken it to before you're ready to be an executive chef or own a restaurant, it's useful to spend a little time in the different parts of the kitchen or out front. Not that I, I have experience there, but like I said, I love food. So I, I think there's a lot to be gained from first learning the sort of ways that volunteer organizations are structured, and that helps a lot. I was in a, in a very fortunate position that there were volunteer groups at the academy that I could participate with, whether they were established legal nonprofit corporations or more informal volunteer groups. I think after cadet time, once you have commissioned, you're out there at your Air Force base or Space Force installation, there will be great opportunities on base and out in the community to volunteer. If you like working with your hands and building things, Habitat for Humanity is, is great. And it's one that a lot of people work with. If, if you've got a perhaps EMT background from the academy, there are, part, there are especially wonderful first responder type organizations that you can work with. You can help out at the Chamber of Commerce if you're interested in business, if you've got coding or web design experience, tons of nonprofits would value your efforts. There's plenty of remote opportunities too. When I started my volunteering, I would say in sort of high schools, when I got a little bit more into it, definitely at the academy, my focus was to sort of look at it almost militaristically. in a sense that you have tactics, operations, and strategy. And so tactically, things that I would do with the Knights of Columbus, and before that, even with the Civil Air Patrol, which is probably the organization I've been most heavily involved with over the years. I I joined when I was, I believe, 15 years old in in 2005. Uh, There are ways that you can join these organizations They will teach you the sort of ways at the local level that you can make an impact. And as you go through, whether you're lumberjacking for a uh, nonprofit to help clear out woods or make firewood for folks, or you're teaching middle school and high school students about leadership and aviation, then when you've got that experience, you can move into sort of the operational side. How do I run a program for multiple different volunteer groups, and then at the strategic level. So a lot of my time is spent more strategically with volunteer groups. And I would say that's kind of divided into being an executive director, which is sort of the CEO equivalent nomenclature in the nonprofit sector for a lot of organizations, or serving as a chairman of the board, uh, vice chair, or on a board of directors, board of trustees. Currently, I'm involved with the Dedalian Foundation, which is the uh, arm of the Order of Dedalians that helps raise money for scholarship programs for those who aspire to be military aviators. Uh, That would be primarily ROTC students at public and private universities. We also support programs for junior ROTC and provide academic scholarships. So being on the board of trustees for that with primarily retired colonels and generals has been an amazing experience. And a lot of that is due to having built up the experience as a, a from being a cadet and a young officer at the tactical and operational levels to be able to join these larger, like multi-million dollar nonprofits at the strategic level and, and help bring innovation and, and modernization, other development to, to great programs. A phenomenal way on base, once you commission and you you get to your installation, I'd say after you finish pilot training or your tech school or whichever else, is the company grade officers council. So CGOC is 
looked at different ways because it, it comes in different flavors depending on the base. Some are super active and encompass a very large amount of people. Some are not as active, but very and very small or different combinations of, of those two different traits some sort of an X, Y axis. There is a way, no matter if you're an, an operator or an aviator or you're in a support field or maintenance or medical or anything else, that you can help out your base, build great bonds with the other lieutenants and captains in your local area and help go out into the community and do great works that can be provided by being an active member of the company Great Officers Council. So uh, as a pilot, I became involved as a young captain in CGOC when there weren't a lot of aviators involved. And I thought it was a great way to build uh, positive relationships, get to know how other careers functioned and then the folks who are in there. And there's definitely a benefit when you get out into your operational world as a young a lieutenant or captain and knowing the folks at the different units. So you've got someone else you can call and they've got someone they can call, whether it's like, hey, I've, I've never really been around the airplane. I'm, I'm a force support officer. I'd love to get a tour of the B-52. Or, hey, I've got some financial stuff going on and your, your wonderful NCOs and airmen have not been able to solve this. Can you help me out here? So a lot of that's been done through CGOC. So I, I was the uh, vice president for Barksdale, ended up running the Western region, which is about 40 bases of CGOC uh, west of the Mississippi and then served as the executive director and national chairman for the Department of the Air Force Company Great Officers Council and trying to bring in the Space Force, establish new councils, provide new bylaws and constitutions for local installations in the regions. There's so many great opportunities. And another thing on the, the volunteer organization front, as you're trying to develop your leadership skills so you can be an awesome person in the cockpit, in your squadron, and perhaps in the corporate world thereafter or other forms of service, the nonprofit world is a great place to be able to test your mettle, to practice your leadership skills and make a positive difference. And I've, I've certainly benefited from both successes and failures in the volunteer world that I feel like have helped me be a better aviator, aircraft commander, flight commander, or staff member in the Air Force. So I'm, I'm definitely appreciative of that. I think you did a great job of not only really laying out like what exactly, what kind of roles there are in a nonprofit, but also kind of actionable and um, realistic things that we could contribute here at the Academy, but as well as, you, you know, we talk a lot about strategy, but when it comes to execution, sometimes we have a hard time coming up with ideas on how to execute that strategy, but I think you give a lot of good examples of things that people can get involved in and, you know, give back. So I appreciate that. And hopefully the, oh, definitely. the listeners Thank you. will take something from it. So you were a political science major at the Academy. You're a, a pilot in the Air Force. Those two That's right. kind of things don't necessarily have i guess on my first intuition don't necessarily have a lot of connection where in your career do you think you've seen your education come in handy in your job definitely i have found that no matter what career field you're in if you have an interest in governance or public service or international affairs regional study, language study, there are ways to take part in that. So when I graduated from USAFA, I switched my NGEP slots and got a, a later slot, was able to do some post-grad support to the Air Force Academy's poli-sci department as a casual lieutenant. So I was really interested in academia and giving back and thought that supporting my department as, as a young lieutenant would be a great opportunity. And it definitely was. DFPS was awesome to, as a second lieutenant, be involved in, to uh, sit in on classes and learn from the professors and through either like the combined federal campaign being the, the main point of contact for that or helping with different activities and programs like the Academy Assembly that the department was doing. And I saw that there were ways that you could incorporate that sort of 
poli-sci related experience in an operational career. So I was accepted to the language enabled airman program for Japanese at the end of my cadet time. And through that, uh, I've been able to go to Japan three times on TDYs wow. to, to practice my Japanese. I've been able to do free one-on-one language training, which is an incredible blessing. And as my career has went up and down in terms of how busy it's been, uh, when, when things are at a sort of an even keel and a little bit less busy, which hasn't been like that for a long time, uh, I was able to, to take part in these lessons. And because of having an intermediate level proficiency in Japanese, there would be times where the Air Force would go, hey, we need a Japanese speaker. And although I'm certainly not fluent, I'd love to be one day, but I'm conversational. So they would go, hey, we have a person who's got some interpersonal conflict at the base and she doesn't speak English, really. Can you translate for us? Or we have a representative of the Asahi Shimbun, a major Japanese media publication coming to our base. Can you give the tour and speak in Japanese and English or Probably the big, ex- the biggest examples, and that was a blast. Uh, that, that was great. Biggest example when I was deployed uh, to the Indo-Pacific region, and we were doing an exercise called Cope North. It has involvement in Guam from the Japan Air Self Defense Force, from Australia's Air Force, and from the U.S. and sometimes some other countries like the Republic of Korea. So, in our major mission planning cells, I was the only operator, I believe that was out there at the time, may have been one other who spoke Japanese. So when we didn't have the official translator help that was able to provide that very strong proficiency, I was in there in the mission planning cells helping translate between us. I gave some briefings on the B-52. I wrote a a full unclassified brief on B-52 operations and and did all the written translation for that. I gave the distinguished visitor escorts, and I think PACAF made a little documentary video about it. it it's been fantastic. And even outside of region-specific, there are ways to be involved with other organizations like think tanks, which if you're not familiar, you, the listener, a think tank is an organization that gets together to consider and reflect on and generate papers or presentations on particular affairs in the world, global affairs, defense affairs. And one of my big pursuits has been being involved with these international affairs groups and doing their fellowships and emerging leaders programs where I can take my operational experience I've had as a a deployed aviator in combat and CENTCOM or from Indo-PACOM from my time there and be able to use that background and the poli-sci learning to try to provide interesting perspectives as a young person on these different global issues and occasionally write for peer-reviewed journals on these subjects. So there, there are ways to bring in that, that, I would say poli-sci interest, that international relations interest into your career, no matter what your career field is in the Air Force, without necessarily going down the foreign area officer track or being a political military affairs officer. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting to see, you know, extra duties come across like that just because you have a special skill. You know, oh, for it, sure. it grants you opportunities that you, you would have never thought of having if if you didn't even, you know, that was some, I don't know if you ever envisioned giving tours to Japanese leaders when you were learning Japanese at the academy. I can't recall if I did or not. <laughs> I think my main desire was I wanted to go to a Japanese restaurant and order sushi in Japanese since... <laughs> One of the main reasons I chose Japanese was I love sushi going back to food. And I went, gosh, wouldn't it be cool to learn Japanese? (laughs) I was like, ah, samurai and ninja are cool. Sushi's fantastic. Why not? And that's kind of how a lot of these opportunities have happened. And getting to, I've been able to converse with 
one of the governors of a prefecture in Japan, a mayor in Japan, Japanese delegations, diplomats. And from another example of the stuff you could do if you're interested in poli-sci, like when you're deployed or you're overseas for a long tour in a installation that's on foreign soil, there are so many awesome cultural opportunities that are there. Serving as the aide-de-camp for the commander of 7th Air Force out in uh, the Republic of Korea was, was amazing for the opportunity to interact with our incredible rock counterparts. And uh, one of my close friends was our uh, ROCAF aide-de-camp, uh, Callsign King, who was in the same office and was a South Korean fighter pilot. And being able to learn from him and, and the other wonderful folks like Andy, our uh, political uh, expert that was in the office on the different elements of the South Korea American Iraq US relationship. It was amazing. And in CENTCOM, being able to pick up a few Arabic phrases to say to the folks for immigration, immigration at Al Udeed as we got ready to embark on our missions uh, against ISIS and the Taliban. So there, there are wonderful cultural opportunities abroad and honestly in your local community as well, no matter where you're stationed. There, there is a community that would certainly benefit and perhaps yearns for a closer relationship with the military members who are local. And they have much to offer from their local communities on, on how they function and that you can do some uh, care to, to be a great local citizen as a, as a young airman. Mm-hmm. I guess to round things out for this episode, you were talking before the podcast about a special program that you're working on. You can speak to that on air, right? Absolutely. I'm just going to okay. properly be uh, given, you know, stern words from on high. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm happy okay. To I was about to say, you don't need no, whatever just, you can share. You don't need to, but it's uh, TSSCI. Yeah. <laughs> no, you mentioned there's a, a USAFA cadet involved in something that you're working on to be presented to um general brown's wife is that correct yes so uh, there is an awesome program for members of the air force to hone their innovation skill set it's called project mercury it's going into its 10th cohort and i am in the ninth cohort of it and it is a program that's been created in uh, concert with Air University and the University of Michigan's College of Engineering and the Ross School of Business, where over a roughly three-month period, uh, these mentors with a lot of leadership experience and uh, PhDs like uh, Dr. DeGraff and Dr. Eagle uh, get together to help teach different uh, methods that one can bring innovation to their local unit or work on processes throughout one's career. And the makeup of the particular program is really fascinating in its uh, diversity of rank and the folks who are involved in it. Uh, MB, one of the cadets at the Academy, a very involved emerging leader, is there as I think the youngest person in the program. We also have some young airmen. And going all the way up to my group has an 06 Fullbird uh, Commandant for a school in it. Our particular program, as we've gone through different design iterations, taking these uh, shots on goal to find out how can we help bridge this civil military gap and make a difference in local communities through volunteer work, which of course is uh, really my wheelhouse for the things that I care about. Uh, we've been working on a plan that, uh, if put into practice, would provide a way to more easily show the opportunities that are available to military members, spouses, kids, all the dependents, uh, to be able to go, hey, I'm available from X time block, I have Y skill set, and I'm in Z area. And using a uh, algorithm that would be based on these myriad of, of factors would be able to help match you with organizations 
that have volunteered to be part of this in your local community or remotely that would benefit from volunteers. So we are pitching our group. Uh, we are uh, in the ninth cohort, the fifth team, nine five. And so I came up with the idea for calling us the Dolly Partons because we're working nine to five. You know, what, what a way to make a living. Uh, so the Dolly Partons, we are presenting a plan to five and thrive, an incredible group uh, started by uh, a, a group of, of wonderful volunteers, such as uh, General Brown's wife, uh, Mrs. Brown, to be able to help out uh, the, these military dependents and families with uh, different efforts. So we think that it, it's a, a great plan. And overall, whether it comes into, into fruition as, as a true product or not, we are all benefiting from this exercise and innovation from the reading. And I know that we'll take it forward uh, and also pay it forward to our, our units and whatever groups that we join. That sounds like a hell of an organization to be spearheading, you know, also shout out to Kelsey MB for being a part of that. Cause she's legit working with probably the, the highest ranking air forces officer's wife. So shout out to that and shout out to you for doing everything that you do for the air force. You know, you, you weren't named 2018 airman of the year for no reason. There's obviously, uh, as you've stated throughout the entire episode, a lot of things that you kind of take on because you see a problem and you just want to make that problem better so that, you know, we don't have to like either be inefficient or for whatever reason that it could make things better in life and focus on kind of higher order things instead of the, the things that could be automated. So thank you for that. Oh, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. And I would say all the groups, uh, Kelsey's, the, the other ones that are in Project Mercury are all, all working wonderful uh, plans that I hope will better our Air Force. And then as far as the Airman of the Year and the, the Service Member of the Year program the Military Times puts on, there are tens of thousands of incredible airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines, uh, Coast Guardsmen, and uh, Guardians who are doing amazing work in their local communities that are slaying the mish, that are crushing it in their units. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunities that have happened, but I also am well aware that 10,000 plus other people would certainly be deserving of, of some of these blessings that have happened for me. But I will do my best to try to really pay it forward and, and help others uh, just like those who've helped me. Mm -hmm. So... Lastly, do you have any advice for cadets that are looking to commission? Find your tiramisu. Find what you care about. And if you think you can make a difference, no matter how small it is, no matter how much out of your lane it is, give it a shot. Of course, the most important thing is being a good officer, being a good leader in your career field, in your unit. If, if you're a a bomber pilot, you're there to, to fly the aircraft and, and deliver global strike. In addition to that, if you've got a way that you can help your unit in a different way or make a difference in your community or in the Air Force, whether you think you're going to succeed or fail, just give it a shot with what you're passionate about. I want to make a, a quick disclaimer to all the, all the listeners. I, I brought... Major Julian Gluck on on the show because he's extremely accomplished and continues to do amazing things. I mean, I don't know if you could list everything he's done in an entire notebook, but that is not to say kind of discourage you because he's an extremely high standard of what is possible. He is there to be an inspiration that, you know, he's an extremely high achiever. And even if you don't achieve that, there is always positive and benefits to to contributing to your community in whatever way possible. So see this not as necessarily um, something to discourage you, be like, oh, I'll never be that good, but more as an inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a million things I'm not good at. There's a reason why I'm eating out all the time. Uh, <laughs> so I just haven't managed to set off any fire alarms recently. And there are ways that you could be an amazing 
parent or significant other or friend or airman or officer and, and whatever thing you care about. So uh, I, I appreciate your your views, Akorm, and, and thanks for, for getting the word out on different ways that cadets can make the most of their, their time and their experiences as they, they navigate this world that we live in. Wouldn't be possible without you, sir. Thank you. Hey, it's not possible without you. I wouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs>